Hello and welcome to the Paediatric Anesthesia Journal's featured article of the month podcast for July 2022. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google Podcasts and Podbean. My name is Dr. Sumit Das and I'm one of the journal's education editors. This month's featured article entitled Perioperative Critical Events and Morbidity associated with anaesthesia in early life, a subgroup analysis of United Kingdom participation in the neonate and children audit of anaesthesia practice in Europe, i.e. Nectarin, a prospective multi-centre observational study. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome one of the authors of this article, Dr. Sue Ellen Walker, who's a paediatric anaesthetist at Great Ormond Street Hospital, London, UK. Welcome to this podcast, Sue Ellen, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Simon. Can I start by asking what prompted you and your colleagues to write this article? Um, and so with my co-authors, we'd actually led the UK component of the Nectarine study, um, which collected data related to over 6,000 cases of neonatal anaesthesia across Europe. Um, and quite a high proportion, nearly 13% of cases had been recruited in the UK. So we wanted to specifically evaluate outcome data for local practice and look in a little more detail at how that might vary um, across Europe. And what were the primary and secondary aims of this study? So our primary aim, as in, in the main study, was to look at the incidence of severe critical events. So these were um, episodes predominantly of physiological instability that required intervention by the um, paediatric anaesthetic team, day morbidity and mortality in the UK, compared that with non-UK um, centres, and also looked in a little more detail at some specific aspects of local practice. And how was the data collected and analysed? So initially, uh, there was a lot of discussion within the steering committee to develop a, a standardised case report form, which we hoped would, would collect um, all the important variables and, and necessary details. And we were fortunate to have support from the with funding from the ESA and also from the APA here in the UK. And so after um, ethics approval, 17 centres in the UK participated. Um, and the anaesthetic team at each centre recruited neonates requiring anaesthesia and um, completed the data in the CA CRF um, with follow-up at 30 days. And I, I, I know that this required uh, quite a lot of work throughout fairly difficult cases, and so I really can't thank enough all the, the um, people who participated and collected data because it really wouldn't have been, been possible without that. And so then all the data was transferred to a central database, um, again, in the ESA. And as you can imagine, um, with the amount of data involved, it took um, some time to ensure that that was um, as accurate as possible. And following analysis of the whole cohort data, we could then um, extract our own um, national data and look at that locally. Great. Uh, I'd like to sort of focus on, on that that data now. Um, can you start by just enlightening us as to what percentage of neonatal anaesthesia is, is actually consultant delivered? I mean, as, as you would expect, the vast majority is, and in fact, 89% of cases um, were performed by consultants and only 11% um, by trainees alone. And in 
again, in a high proportion of cases, there were more than one anaesthetist involved either. Um, so about half by a consultant and a trainee. So lots of um, training opportunities there. Um, but several cases, in fact, 17%, there were two or more um, anaesthetic consultants at different levels um, of experience. And so I think this really um, reflects both the complexity of many of the cases as a high proportion um, had high ASA scores, but I think it also provides useful data about the resources um, that are required for neonatal anaesthesia, um, particularly when you consider that 27% came from ICU and 39% were transferred back to, to ICU postoperatively. Um, and so, you know, these are potential high risk and, and complex cases that, that we're reporting. Thank you. Can you elaborate on the anaesthetic techniques used? Were there any instances of regional anaesthesia alone, for example? Um, so the majority were, were GAs. Um, in fact, there were only uh, less than 1% that were regional anaesthesia alone. Uh, and so there were five that, that were um, hernia repairs under spinal. And there was one case um, for a procedural intervention that was predominantly sedation and, and local anaesthetic. But 33% had a combined GA and regional, and most commonly um, that was a caudal, but often um, other regional techniques or, or local anaesthetic infiltration. So, um, you know, quite a, a high emphasis on, on other analgesia alongside um, the anaesthesia as well. Thank you. Um, what patient factors predicted cardiovascular instability? Um, so we looked at this by comparing um, cases with and without episodes of, of cardiovascular um, instability. Um, and predominantly this was uh, drops in blood pressure. And factors included patient factors, particularly younger age at the time of anesthesia. So um, infants that were still in the, the sort of preterm phase. Um, Preoperative factors, again, predicting the sort of risks. So those coming from intensive care, requiring inotropes or, or respiratory support um, with cardiovascular comorbidities. And again, this was reflected in, in a higher ASA score in those that um, subsequently got cardiovascular um, instability. But also, um, importantly, surgical factors, so urgent or emergency procedures, um, and also the length of um, surgery. Were, so longer surgery was associated with an increased odds of cardiovascular instability. And again, this likely reflects the, the complexity of the type of surgery that, that, um, that is taking longer. So a lot of these factors will be, will be interrelated. Were the factors playing a role in, in respiratory events different or, or again, similar? Though they were similar to some degree, um, although the, the incidence of those was, was less common and, and so there weren't as, as clear differences. And in fact, there were a proportion of cases um, where there was cardiovascular instability and hypoxia. And that was the, the factor that came out um, as, as the biggest predictor of, of morbidity and mortality in the, in the main study, um, which was a combination of, of hypoxia, hypotension um, and, and anemia. Um, but in terms of um, episodes of hypoxia, again, it was the younger babies, those coming from intensive care um, and those requiring urgent surgery. Um, that were the major major factors. Were there any helpful learning points around the neonatal difficult airway? So I think, I mean, the incidence was about 3.7%, and so it's slightly less than, than the full cohort. Um, but I 
think the, the main thing is that, you know, of those 29 that required interventions, 20 were unpredicted um, or unplanned. And, and so, you know, even though we can try and identify those with difficult airways, there will still be um, surprises. I think the main thing was that the majority were managed by um, changing the blade or using a stylet or bougie um, and assistance from another anaesthetist. And sometimes this required several attempts at intubation, but there was only one case um, that had to be woken up um, because they couldn't be intubated, was subsequently intubated with um, um, video laryngoscopy. Um, so again, I think this really reflects the, the resources um, and the experience that can be needed for these cases. And obviously the need for, for training and practicing difficult airway scenarios, um, as, a, as I said, the majority were unanticipated. Um, and so thinking about, about those factors before um, embarking on, on these cases. Thank you. Um, and how does UK practice differ from non-UK practice? Um, I think one of the things that, that I was surprised how big the difference was, was in the use of inhalation versus intravenous induction. So in the UK, um, inhalation induction was, was um, much more common, about seven times more common um, than it was used in, in other centres where, you know, IV inductions were more common. And also as well, you know, a high proportion were intubated. There were very few cases. So 90% of the cases were intubated. There were very few um, that were done on a face mask or, or with um, a supraglottic airway. Now, this might be, um, again, reflected by the case mix. Um, they were predominantly large paediatric centres that recruited the majority of patients um, in the UK. Uh, and so, again, you know, they are the high-risk um, patients and, and our uh, rate of urgent surgery and high ASA scores um, was greater than across the, the non-UK centres. Um. For our listeners, Sue Ellen, can you suggest the take-home messages of, of your findings? Um, I think the main things are that, you know, critical events are perhaps more common than we think, you know, in over a third of cases. But I think it's really useful to have this data um, both to inform families and other members of the surgical and, and uh, team, um, but also to identify high-risk um, cases and so the, the factors that are really going to be important um, to, to identify at the pre-op assessment. It also, I think, again, reflects the, the high incidence or, or you know, the, the resources that are required um, for these cases. And it was one of the things that was, was, again, was different in the UK that we had a higher proportion of children who'd been transferred from another hospital um, prior to, to surgery. And that, I suspect, reflects the sort of centralised care that we have in the UK um, for neonatal cases. And that, I think, again, um, is, uh, is supported by the, the need for that is supported by the, the complexity um, of these cases. I think the other thing that, that actually um, surprised me was how many of these kids were having repeated episodes of anaesthesia, either prior to joining Nectarine or within the, the sort of two to three month recruitment period. And again, uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, reflecting their sort of comorbidities, um, but also the sort of um, potential uh, effects for them in, in later life in terms of, you know, sensory function or, or other factors and, you know, really teasing out those, trying to improve the cardiovascular or respiratory um, stability throughout these cases 
um, to minimise any sort of long-term effects of, of, of physiological instability. And it really reflects, again, I, I think, the, the sort of lack of standardised guidelines and standardised data for what is a normal baseline blood pressure in, in neonates. We did see that the baseline blood pressure changed with, with postmenstrual age, um, so it increased with postmenstrual age, and there, but there wasn't a clear relationship between baseline blood pressure and those who developed cardiovascular instability. So there are other factors um, perioperatively that, that um, become more important. And so I think, you know, looking at uh, the types of interventions and when we should intervene, um, we, we need more evidence um, in the future to be able to, to look at that more, more closely. Thank you so much, Dr. Walker. Uh, this has been an interesting discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to chat and we look forward to more contributions from you and your team. Thanks very much, Simit. Great. That wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for July 2022. This article will be available for free on the journal's website very shortly. In the meantime, please follow us on Twitter on at PD Anesthesia and join us for next month's featured article of the month. Until then, cheers.